Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast from Altos Research. This is the show where we talk to real estate industry insiders and experts about the trends shaping the market today. Enjoy the show. Mike Simonson here. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast. This is where I talk to the smartest leaders, thinkers, and doers in the real estate industry. For three years now, we've been sharing the latest market data every week in our Altos Research weekly video series. With the Top of Mind podcast, we're looking to add context to the discussion about what's happening in the market from leaders in the industry. Each week, of course, Altos Research tracks every home for sale in the country, all the pricing, all the supply and demand, all the changes in that data, and we make it available to you before you see it in the traditional channels. People desperately need to know what's going on right now in the housing market. It, you know, it was frozen so solid last fall, and then suddenly the landscape changed this spring, and is it changing again right now? Everybody's worried about what happens in 2023. So if you need to communicate about this market to your clients, go to altosresearch.com. You can book free consultation with our team about how to use market data in your business. But speaking of data and informing people about the market, I have a terrific guest today, Taylor Marr. Taylor is the Deputy Chief Economist at Redfin. He is passionate about housing and urban policy and is an advocate for increased mobility and affordability. I can't wait to talk about those two topics today. Taylor's research has been featured in New York Times, the, the Wall Street Journal, The Economist. He is was also recently the president of the Seattle Economics Council and collaborates frequently with the Fed and HUD and... The Census Bureau. So Taylor, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. You've had a lot of very interesting guests on your show, and I'm happy to be a part of it. Th thanks. Yeah, really great to have your perspective on here. Um, we haven't talked before, but we're we're Twitter friends, so this is great. Like, I'm looking forward to, to learning about you and and your take on, and your research that you've done, and 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 also obviously, you know, Redfin has such a uh, a strong. Uh, position and uh, to to track the market, so we're going to learn about what what Redfin knows too today. So that's great. Let's um, let's get started though with you. Like tell tell me about your your background and like how you developed your expertise. And you know those of us who care about things like urban planning are in a in a small niche <laughs> of of the universe. So so tell me about tell me about that and and, uh, and like how we got here. Yeah. Well. Great question. You know, so I grew up in Iowa, so not someone you would expect to be, uh, you know, fascinated with urban planning. But, uh, you know, I studied economics in undergrad and have since moved a lot. So I'm passionate about cities and working with data and migration. Uh, so my wife and I have been married over 10 years and we're in our 15th home across five cities and states. So you could say that my passion for migration and housing is a personal one. I've moved quite a bit. Uh, but I started my career out in Seattle in 2012 as a data analyst, analyzing data and, and really growing in that skill set uh, that I built uh, studying economics. Uh, it wasn't until grad school that I went to in Berlin, Germany, where I started to focus on my research on the housing bubble. And in particular, the policy responses in the Dodd-Frank Act and, and what regulations went in place to address the housing crisis and, and the financial crisis that ensued. Uh, and so it 
was in 2015 that I joined Redfin and started to really dig into all of Redfin's fascinating data sets, uh, started to research cities, urban planning, and, and how all of that connects with the macroeconomic environment. So it's been a wild ride, but really I got started with building out my skill set in data and analyzing data, and that's always been the lens through which I uh, come to my work. Man, so 15 homes in 10 years? Yeah, that's right. So I get like I get like anxiety just like thinking about it. What? How did that come about? Well, you know, we talk so much at Redfin and in my research about the importance of where you live, and the neighborhood you live in matters quite a bit. The home type, uh, people care about commutes, and I found uh, through moving a lot, it's really opened up access to opportunity. Moving has enabled you know new job opportunities, new experiences. Uh, and also new quality of life with changing, you know, moving into a single family home once you have kids, uh, going through that life cycle of homeownership. Uh, but ultimately, we're pretty flexible and dynamic and, and moving around a lot has really enabled a lot of great opportunities. One of the things that strikes me is that people don't move as much as they used to. In fact, they move about half as much as they did 50 years ago. And mobility rates across the U.S. have, have declined for about 50 years consistently. Uh, for a lot of reasons, but ultimately, I think people don't move as much as maybe they ought to uh, to create some you know, opportunities and, and connect people to jobs and better quality of life. Yeah, so half as much. I knew that it was declining. It went from like seven years to more than 10 years, but it's, it's really half as much we move these days. And so let's talk about that. Like, I'm interested in the reasons for that, but also the implications of that. So what are, what are the biggest reasons that you see that people don't move as much anymore? Well, part of it is housing affordability. Housing has gotten extremely expensive in a lot of the places that offer the best opportunity, the best neighborhoods within a city, but also the best labor markets like the Bay Area, New York City, D.C. These are places that are vibrant. Lots of jobs are booming there, but housing has just gotten too expensive a lot of that's because they're not building housing. Zoning codes really prevent a lot of housing construction in the places that are best suited to attract new workers. Uh, so that that's one aspect. But there's other nuances, such as uh, codes across state lines, like occupational licensing, prevent people from being able to easily move across states. So, so there's a wide variety of reasons why people aren't moving or, you know, across the country as much. But even within cities, uh, people move less frequently. They're sitting in their home on average about 12 years, we're finding, uh, which is more than doubled from about a decade ago. Uh, so they're staying in their homes longer. Even you know when you look at demographics of who's moving, uh, people are just sort of locked into their home. Um, and, and a lot of that really has to do with housing affordability. Yeah. So that is affordability, like I, I have a house and I have payments based on 12 years ago, but if I move now to, to move up or equivalent, like it's significantly more expensive home, even, well now w with rates up, but even a year ago, was that true? With rates, when rates were falling, mortgage were super low? So when mortgage rates fell below 3% during the pandemic, it really incentivized a lot of people to move. Uh, so we did see increased mobility during the pandemic, particularly among homeowners rather than renters, because homeowners had a buildup of equity and they also were able to take advantage of, of the low rates. So it shifted them you know, more to the suburbs or towards more affordable markets. Um, and, and that was a key factor during the pandemic. You know, Right now that rates are higher, it's certainly locking more people in place. Uh, before the pandemic, it was the case that 
renters had a hard time breaking into uh, home ownership uh, overall. So across the country, uh, with the exception of a number of more affordable places that uh, attracted a lot of first-time home buyers, but in a lot of other cities, uh, even though incomes are growing, housing prices also were were growing much faster. So over the last uh, several decades, we move less. We move less because each time, each decade we go to move, it's more. It's a big chunk of money. It's more expensive. You mentioned occupational licensing, which I hadn't thought about, but that's really interesting. Uh, you can imagine as as over the decades, as those types of things get more red tapey, it's really hard to think about picking up and moving whatever my profession is to a new to a new place. And there are other things like uh, dynamics, like over that same period, we've had generally decreasing mortgage rates, interest rates over the last decades. Did that lead to people staying in place more? Well, it's hard to say. Um, There's sort of conflicting forces. So on the one hand, you know, mortgage rates decline. You could just refinance. You can tap into that equity that you've built up and remodel your home. That certainly makes it more feasible for people to stay in home. Uh, There are specific state laws, such as in California, the tax laws that uh, sort of lock in lower taxes, also strongly disincentivize moving and we do see that people stay in place much longer in, in California than elsewhere. Uh, so there are some you know, local nuances there as well. But uh, alongside drops in rates, you also face competition from first-time homebuyers that you know, it just got more favorable to own rather than rent. Um, so it's not always a net benefit for, for move-up buyers you know, when rates do, do fall. So, uh, and there's been a gradual increase in competition coming from investors. They make up a larger share of the market now as well, uh, which is, you know, a fascinating trend. Yeah. So, so let's talk about those too. But one question. So I'm a, I am a, a vocal, I'm a California resident and a vocal anti-Prop 13 tax law, like the worst tax law ever uh, that is most distortive to the market. It's just crazy to watch what happens there. Um, where, so for people who don't know in California, you buy a house and you keep it forever and your, your property taxes basically never go up a little tiny bits. And so, you know, um, you know, if you could, you buy a house and you buy a $2 million house in San Francisco, your neighbor who's had that house for 50 years, you're paying maybe, uh, like whatever, a thousand percent more in taxes. You're paying $50,000 a year or $40,000 a year, uh, and your neighbor is paying five hundred or 5000 or something like that. Like, really, it's nuts. And, uh, and as a result, if you're that first neighbor, that you, know, you, you don't ever sell. You, you'd never move. Um, d- did you have a number? Do you know how, how long in California they, people don't move? I believe that on average it's about 15 years right now. Um... That, that the typical for sale owner turns over their property. Right. So it's 12 for the country, 12 for the country, and it's 15 in California because it's a really good deal to not move. That's exactly right. Yeah. 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 That's okay. That's interesting. So um, you mentioned the investor phenomenon. So over, especially over the last decade, and as rates have dropped really low, it's also been a really good deal to own property uh, as an investor. And so people have been doing it. One of the things I notice is the trend. It's like a doubling up trend. Is I, I watch people, 
Like I go, especially when rates are at four, three percent, they like I'm mo- I am moving, but I might I'm just going to keep the first house as an investment property, and now I have two mortgages at three percent rather than you know one at six, and so like that phenomenon is really taking inventory out uh, of every year we watch inventory available inventory of homes to 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 buy. Do you have? Other stats or, or insight to share on like the investor trend and uh, you know things we should know about there. Absolutely, investors bought nearly one in five homes uh, over the last year in that were available for sale in the market. So investors were swooping up a lot of properties. You know they really ramped up activity overall throughout the pandemic. Uh, but you know before the pandemic, it was closer to 14 percent. So we saw a significant jump not only in their purchases, but also in the, the share of activity that they were making up. Uh, so, so that priced out a lot of people in certain areas. And those properties that were for sale did transition on net to the rental market. So it created some long-term rental options for people, uh, which is good for renters in general. It shifted some supply. Uh, but overall, it, that does limit some of the home ownership opportunities for some people. So investors definitely ramped up their activity, but they're pulling back sharply. Um, They're still elevated a little bit, but they are reacting uh, a little bit more than other home buyers in the broader market to higher rates. And I think a lot of that has to do with the uncertainty of where home prices might go. Investors don't want to be, you know, caught holding a home that is declining in value faster than they expected. Uh, But overall, aside from just investors, um, if people are holding on to their home and they're more likely to purchase a second home, we saw a big rise in second home purchases during the pandemic, particularly in vacation spots. Uh, but if they do that, if they're holding on to their original home when they buy their second home and decide to become a landlord and rent that out, the one problem with that is as new construction uh, gets added to a market, that can trickle down for affordability uh, by filtering down to middle class and lower income households when middle income people free up their starter home and move into those you know nice newer homes in a housing market. But if they're holding on to their starter home and becoming a landlord, then that means that the traditional mechanism that affordable housing gets created is a bunch of new construction frees up older homes uh, to, to get moved into or to get purchased. Uh, if they're now just vacated by renters, then uh, that limits really a lot of affordable housing options. One of the things that we looked at for 2022 is that there were half as many affordable homes for sale in 2022 as there were in 2021. So we did see, in fact, that not only were there uh, you know affordability challenges with higher rates, but actually there were just so few listings hitting the market, and particularly in those starter home price ranges. Uh, so that really created many fewer options for first-time home buyers during 2022. And according to NAR data, we did see a lot of first-time home buyers were just priced out of the market, and who were buying homes were significantly older people um, who, you know, were, were able to remain in the market, maybe take equity and, and purchase with cash. Yeah. So half as many affordable homes in 22 as 21. Uh, and so, yes, mortgage rates, obviously, but also the limited inventory. So how do you define affordable? So in this analysis, we looked at uh, what is the typical monthly payment that's available on a home, looking at the, the asking price of the home that's available for sale, 
what's the current mortgage rate for the month that it was for sale, and then what are your typical incomes in those local counties? Uh, what can they afford at 30%? So if you can afford that monthly mortgage payment for for 30% of your your total gross income, then that would be an affordable home. And we look at all of those affordable homes uh, across time. Typically, what we'd expect to see is about half of homes available for sale are affordable to the median income because the median would be about half. So there'd be more people making more income that can afford the more expensive homes. Uh, and that would be somewhat of a balanced market, which is where we were in about 2013. Since then, affordability has eroded. Uh, incomes just haven't kept up with how mortgage payments have increased. And in 2021, even when rates were at 3%, prices boomed, and we only saw about 40% of homes were available, were affordable, uh, of those that were afford uh, available for sale. Sorry, it's a mouthful. And then that really fell from 40% to 21% in 2022. Um, so, so it was really being hit with the double whammy of fewer listings, particularly starter homes, hitting the market, as well as rising rates, pricing out a lot of homes from being affordable. affordable. So here's, here's an interesting uh, question, something that I wrestle with. The uh, one of the, the housing bubble arguments, the, 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 you know, the folks who think like housing price, home prices must decline from here and maybe decline a lot. One of those arguments is the affordability argument. It's the, it's the, there, there, aren't enough affordable homes for the buyers and therefore home prices must correct down. That's the, that's the argument. Um, I have some opinions on it, but I am curious what your take on that, like it, the predictability of home price corrections as a result of unaffordability. I'm really glad you brought that up because I do think uh, related to one of the other things I want to discuss, which is what's often misunderstood it is this exact point that home prices sort of have to correct to re or revert to the mean, their long-term trend, uh, whatever trend they create, such as price to income ratio over time or something. And, uh, and I do think the analysis we've done on affordability really look at, looks at what supply is hitting the market and how does that supply match up based on what you would typically expect to be affordable for uh, the median income. There are a lot of nuances with affordability, and, and this is where I think uh, traditional headlines might get it wrong a little bit, is affordability is much more complicated than uh, some of those simple price-to-income metrics over time and why you would expect there to be a housing bubble because prices are too high. The reasons for that are because you have to look at mortgage rates and look at mortgage payments, which we did in our affordability analysis, but you also have to look at uh, other means of payment that people might be able to mitigate some of those affordability challenges. So a lot of boomers right now are sitting in homes and they've built up trillions of dollars of equity across the U.S. that they're able to cash in on and maybe pay cash for a property uh, or move in and take advantage of low mortgage rates. And that's an aspect of affordability, which is sort of the wealth effect that economists like to call out. The wealth that's built up either through home equity or through other means. So during the pandemic, we had trillions of dollars of subsidy go out to uh, American people. And that extra cash was built up. A lot of that was used to fund down payments. We saw down payments increase during the pandemic. A lot of that extra cash came from fiscal policy uh, or other means during the pandemic, um, like the student loan moratorium allowed people to save up a little bit more cash as well. And these other aspects of funding 
um, are often missed with discussions on affordability uh, or, or you know why prices maybe are unsustainable if you just look at how home prices have grown. Uh, and so those are some some nuances. I think it's important to look at demographics. Um, you know, an older population might be able to support a different level of of affordability than a younger population, and also that trade-offs are okay. So some people are okay to pay more for, for a home because they're purchasing more amenities. So California should almost, coastal California should almost always be less affordable than, uh, you know, rural South Dakota. And that's just because there are certain amenities that you're purchasing when you're, when you're buying access to the sun, to the jobs, and, and all of that. And so inevitably, you would just expect to spend more of the typical income on housing there, maybe uh, have a longer lifetime of, of renting versus owning. And that's okay. Those are trade-offs that people make. Uh, it, there does need to be new construction to, to create some of those affordable listing options. Uh, but I do think people kind of miss some of these nuances when you're looking at affordability. Yeah. Uh, let me tell you, I grew up in Chicago and that California sunshine is worth every penny. <laughs> it's the middle of March it's worth every penny. Um, so, you know, that the, 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 you're talking about the median price versus the median income, uh, in, in a market. And one of the things that, that we, and I think you kind of, you kind of, uh, talked about this, what is the, the way I've looked at it is essentially inventory per capita. It's the number of people fighting per for those available homes, and and if inventory is a third of where it was a few years ago, it doesn't have to be affordable to half the people. It only has to be affordable to to significantly fewer people to be to keep it sustained. Keep the prices sustainable. Exactly, and that's what we're seeing right now. One of the things that confounds a lot of predictions is that prices are pretty stable. Latest data in our release today shows prices declined for the first time since 2012, uh, but not even by 1% year over year. And part of the reason for that is we're seeing about 20% fewer listings are hitting the market this year compared to a year ago. And sellers, they can sit in place and opt to not sell their home. Is Sometimes when the market cools off from higher rates, we see a flood of homes hit the market, and that really exacerbates how much prices cool off. Uh, right now, we're seeing the opposite, that supply is pulling back about just as much as demand, uh, maybe slightly less. But because of that, we're seeing prices are overall remaining uh, relatively stable. So they are down, but uh, some people would have expected prices to be down 5 to 10% by now, um, whereas we're just not seeing that even in the latest data. Now, as time goes on and we still experience you know, some of the higher rates, our outlook is that prices will probably be down about 5%, um, you know, later this year. But but overall, um, you know, sellers can accept what price they receive. And, uh, and if they don't receive the price, they can opt to hold off the market. And that's going to keep prices relatively elevated on, on what's left. That's okay. So the Redfin outlook is about 5% price decrease for 2023. And... Uh, with the assumption that restricted supply keeps a sort of floor on price declines, even though demand is way down. That's exactly right. And, and at least that's what we've seen basically play out over the last uh, three or four months or so in the data is that, uh, you know, prices just really haven't accelerated. We saw the sharpest drop in terms of home values 
uh, back last August when the market was reacting sharply to the jump in rates. But since then, uh, they're still declining about 0.3% per month. Uh, if we carry that forward for the next six months or so, looking at Case-Shiller, for example, then the peak to trough uh, by that time would still only be about 5%. Um, from there on, rates have, have stabilized, even come down a little bit from their peak. So that would bring a little bit more stability in, in prices from there. Uh, but, but so far, that's basically what we've observed. Now, there's a lot of uncertainty as to what can happen from that point on. Uh, there may be a banking crisis or a recession that we enter into. We'll learn a lot uh, about what the Fed plans to do and how the economy reacts to, to all of that. Um, and that could definitely change what happens with prices. But for now, based on the latest information we have, uh, that outlook seems fairly sensible to me. That's great. And that's actually a good, a good time to talk about Redfin a little bit and uh, what you get access to in your hands, you know, and, and how that looks. Tell me about tell me about the Redfin data process that you get to that you use and, and, and your work there. So when I first joined Redfin, I was so excited to jump into all of our excellent data. We have more than 50 million monthly users across our website and we get a track the entire home buying process, which is pretty unique. We get to see how customers are planning to buy a home, where they would like to buy a home in their searches. Uh, they can save searches and say, hey, I prefer to live in this city uh, with this budget. So we get to view not only uh, what their preferences are, but then also how they carry that out based on what homes are hitting the market, how they tour these homes with Redfin agents. And in particular, one of the unique things is we get to even analyze what does it take to win a bidding war as they're making offers with agents and facing competition. So we get to track the life cycle of different uh, home buyers, uh, even as they consider renting now on Redfin. So we have access to all of this data, tracking both the for sale and the rental market, all the way down to what's happening with agent behavior. So that's really cool. And, and, and uh, I think we talk a lot, like especially on Twitter, about, about the market, about the houses. What are you seeing in the users right now? So here's, let me, uh, you know, we have, you mentioned this, like since the beginning of the year, a bunch of us have been surprised about sort of how robust things have been. Uh, you know, if you expect, you know, followed November, December through, you, I, you know, I expected inventory to be building and demand to be still falling off, but those turned around at least until maybe banks started failing, but, but they, uh, but they turned around. So tell me about the user data that you've seen through March. What, what do we know? So what we know is that there's still a lot of interest. So some people have completely, you know, just decided mortgage rates are up. I'm not going to even think about moving right now. Uh, but we have been surprised that overall, there's still a lot of activity of people Googling homes for sale, they're searching on Redfin, uh, and they're touring homes with, with agents, reaching out to them. Where they stop is in the time of making an offer. They're struggling with affordability, how, how to handle rates. Are rates going to drop next week by half a point? Are they going to shoot up? Is now a good time to lock in? So they deal with these questions. And we also have a mortgage company called Bay Equity. And these customers you know, are, are talking closely with lenders. They're talking closely with agents and wondering, how much power do I have here to get the home price lower? Uh, so all of this is what we're seeing is really buyers are sort of sitting on the sidelines. They are wanting to buy. They're feeling like there aren't many homes for sale. When they are making offers, uh, they have more power, but they're really just struggling with the higher rates. So one of the things that buyers have been doing that we found working with our agent data 
is that they've been increasingly asking sellers to give them concessions on home sales. So maybe they'll make an offer for a home that's listed at 500. They'll make an offer for, let's say, 490. But then they might also say, uh, can the seller kick back $10,000 to cover the repairs for a roof or to put towards buying down a mortgage rate? And that behavior is something, again, that's unique to Redfin data that we can kind of track how sellers are giving this money back to buyers through the offer. It's also something that the data misses a little bit because we might be able to track sale prices, uh, but we can't fully track you know, how much extra are buyers also getting back. So maybe they're getting the home for 2% under asking and we're seeing some weakness in prices, but maybe the seller's also having to give another 3 5% back to the buyer uh, in the form of a concession. And so they're at a record level right now, and that's something that is helping buyers through higher rates. They're able to take that money, particularly from builders. There was a builder outside of Seattle that gave $80,000 back to the buyer uh, towards buying down mortgage rates and, and really mitigating with uh, some of the affordability challenges. 80 grand. Yeah. 80 grand. That's, those are some serious concessions. And so when you say concessions right now, and I saw you tweet this the other day, concessions right now are at a record level. That is in terms of percentages of homes, deals that we see happening that we know that there are concessions in, as opposed to the volume, the, the 80 grandness of it, that's the, the quantity of them. And that's exactly right. Yeah. How common are they for the typical buyer getting from the seller where the seller has to not only sell the home, maybe for under asking, but also give an additional amount back to the buyer to close the deal. And and so would you say, so concessions at a record level, uh, is that uh, a long history? Is that like Redfin? Like I started Alto 17 years ago and, you know, Glenn had just taken over at, at, at Redfin, like that, like a long time ago. Is, is that concession history go that far back? So our data reliably goes back to 2012, where we can see what's happened basically for the last decade. And uh, in, in this 46% would be the highest amount during that period of time. Now, during the housing bubble, there may have been other forms of, you know, buyer power that, that might have been happening, especially from builders. But uh, but as of now, this is kind of the time period we're talking about. Right. So and and th and that the last decade's been all strong. So what's interesting, what I'm wondering is like, you know, have, we've been sort of under concessioning for maybe for the decade. Uh, and now it's like getting back to a much more common place. Like I, you know, I bought my first house 20, whatever, five years ago, no, seven years ago, something like that. And, you know, it's like, there were, it was all concessions, right? Like that was the whole the process, right? You know, and, and, um, you know, I bought my second home in 2001 in Silicon Valley, like after the bubble burst. And it was, it was still like all of those things. So, um, and then, uh, you know, but in the recent times, it's like, oh, it's a bidding war. And like, no, I guess I have to waive getting an inspection, you know, like all the, the things. Um, and so really seeing those come back, it's almost like, you know, this is what the process should be. Um, and you could imagine if there were a normal level of homes for sale, you know, that that we would maybe we'd have even more of those. Perhaps. I do think. Uh, pricing is the main way that buyers and sellers come to the table to negotiate. Uh, and 
sellers are a little bit firmer on pricing right now. They're already having to drop their price. They're having to accept an offer well under asking as the market has cooled so rapidly. I mean, never has mortgage rates more than doubled within a year. And that abrupt change to affordability means that buyers not only have this additional power to uh, to get a price drop, to get it for under asking, but this newfound power to get additional concessions may be uh, due to the speed. So in a normal, more balanced market with inventory, yes, we'd still expect some concessions, uh, but we'd expect instead the market to be more balanced based on prices rather than on throwing in these extras, uh, which also costs the seller money. Maybe the buyer feels like it's a win uh, on top of that. But uh, but overall, you know what we would normally expect to happen is really just to have a more balanced market for uh, for people buying the home relative to the asking price. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So um, these are on the margins. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, and that actually brings up another point that we've talked about recently, uh, which is uh, price reductions. So uh, price reductions are also high. And, and, and here's an interesting way to think about it. I think you reported that in February, the, the price reductions and the concessions were at the, the record highs in, in, in your data. Um, and, uh, and I like to, I think I pointed out that, that these are of the sales that closed in February, these are homes that did price reductions while they were listed in the Altos data, the price reductions peaked in whatever it was late November, which was like when those February home sales were on the market. Right. So like that was the, the thing. And, and so there's interesting ways to measure price reductions. Price reductions on the homes that are closing now, on the homes that are that are on the market, or the ones that newly kicked in this week. Like who cut their price this week? When you know the banks fail, who panics? Uh, did did you notice an uptick in price reductions this week? So not really. Price reductions are elevated still in our in our latest weekly data in terms of the the count of how many uh, sellers are having to drop their price. They're, they're much higher than any time in the last four years for the spring market. Um, you're right, they're down from their November peak when, when it really was a lot of uh, the market freezing up and sellers having to react sharply to high rates. Uh, in February, about 14% of homes did drop their price that, that were actively available for sale. Um, but in the month of December, uh, more than 50% of homes sold for under asking price. And so the, the majority of homes either had to sell for below asking, also the number of homes that sold that dropped their price at any point while they were on the market, um, I believe was also over 50% in the month of uh, December too. So, so as the market cooled off sharply and at the end of last year, you're right that you know looking at just the weekly flow of, of price drops kind of mass all the homes that have had to drop their price at least once in order to close the deal. Uh, and then on top of that, sell for under asking. Um, which, you know, really added to the pressure uh, uh, on top of the concession. So all of those three things together, dropping their price, selling for under asking, and then giving money back to the buyer in form of concessions really paints a little bit weaker picture for the seller than you might otherwise get looking at any one of those metrics. That's uh, really, really insightful. Uh, have you done any work on the predictive nature of price reductions? Like houses on the market now and it takes a price cut because there's no demand out there. What does that imply for the final sales price later on? 
So certainly there are cases where price drops can fuel a bidding war. Some people try that strategy where they cut it really sharply and then they get, you know, instantly a couple offers. Most price drops are ones that they were just a little too aggressive on their pricing initially. So maybe they should have priced it at 500 rather than 525. Uh, and they were just sort of testing the water. And then after their home received no offers for two to three weeks, they decide, okay, maybe I, I tried a little too hard. Let's drop the price. So that's the majority is just that price drops are simply um, capturing the, the part of the distribution of sellers that were uh, trying a little bit too aggressive. Um, that said, uh, price drops, they do notify a lot of buyers. They can generate offers. Someone opens up their Redfin app that says, hey, the home you favorited just dropped their price. That does generate tours. People, you know, it can generate some demand. But you are better if you actually price your home right the first time. You get a lot more views and tour activity when you price at 500 the first time than you do after you drop your home to 500 uh, three weeks after sitting on the market. The reason for that is a lot of people just filter out homes that have been on the market more than two weeks and uh, they, they just don't care. They just want what's fresh uh, because there are so few homes hitting the market every week. Um, they, they really just need to stay on top of every listing. So it's much better. You're going to get more activity pricing your home right the first time when you debut than, uh, than having to do the strategy of, of ratcheting it down. And oftentimes what we saw happen last year is that it was sellers playing catch up uh, week after week. And the number of homes that had to drop their price more than once uh, really started to escalate. And it's because they maybe dropped their price to 500 after a mortgage rate shot up, but then it was already too late and they had to drop it again to 475. And so that started to happen as well, where uh, you can end up chasing the market and, uh, and really struggle to um, receive an offer by then. That's a really, really great insight. The, the fact that pricing right the first time actually generates more views and more tours and there used to be an old um you know saying that like there's some people i've heard say you know if you didn't do one price reduction you underpriced your house but it's really fascinating to see that we're in a world where that may no longer be true and, I, and we've observed that you know about uh, as a as a simple heuristic uh, about 30 percent of homes overpriced and they take a price cut before they sell in a sort of normal market and some of that's you know strategic and some of it's a you know wacky seller and some of it is accidental and and so um uh but but uh you know it's about that and so you know, when we watched last year, you know, price reductions, if we think 30 is normal and we see, you know, only 15 have taken price cuts, like that's a hot market. And then when it changes really abruptly, like it did last year, that was uh, a real signal. Um, and and uh, I think it's really, that's a powerful observation about in terms of being able to see the number of views and the number of tours and things like when it's priced right in the, in the first time uh, is, is a great, is a great point. Are there other things that you like in, in your data, in the Redfin data or in your, your work that you like as a, uh, as a particularly powerful uh, stat to pay attention to? Yeah, so we have a Redfin homebuyer demand index that I, I find really unique because it captures people who are reaching out to Redfin agents to tour a home. And, uh, and this is a seasonally adjusted index we track every week uh, with how buyers are reacting to things like drops in mortgage rates. It's a little bit 
earlier in the home buying process than someone uh, locking in a mortgage application often. And so it can be a little bit more of a leading indicator in terms of what we'd expect to happen with pending home sales and, and closed sales. So it's a great gauge of overall home buying demand. Uh, but you know, otherwise, we really just try and keep in touch with our agents and their commentary in terms of what's happening with bidding wars, with competition, with how busy were the weekends in the D.C. area or in Seattle. And those insights are tremendously valuable because those anecdotes really tell us where to look in the data. So this past week, I, I heard that there was a lot of competition touring homes uh, over the weekend in the D.C. area. And as, as that happens, it really causes me to wonder, you know, how many people are actually still facing decent competition? Even though competition's lower, they're still facing, let's call them low-ball bidding wars, where you're trying to each offer, you know, 5 to 10% under asking, and you want to get that home significantly under to help with higher rates, you think it's overpriced, you know, if home values might fall further. But, uh, but, you know, you need to price that into your offer. And if other people are trying to do the same because there aren't many homes available for sale, then that's just a really fascinating thing that, you know, you might not see in the data uh, very easily when you, you know, look at the overall sales stats. That's cool. So the, the agency, I find agent anecdotes really great too. It's mostly probably for confirmation bias for me, but it's, it's like, you know, like, okay, you're saying what I think it's, it's supposed to be saying. But are, do you have, do you quantify uh, the agent reactions? Like, do you like have a... Uh, yes, I'm busy this week kind of flag that you can go across all your Redfin agents? We do have the share of Redfin offers that faced competition, and we track that over time and by market and by, you know, by property, by price point, and we try and understand uh, you know, where is competition really starting to escalate uh, or where has it fallen off where buyers can get a really good deal right now. Um, that, that's been you know, one unique uh, data point that we've been tracking. Great. So, yeah, yeah for sure, you've got the competition uh, and then the buyer, it's a, you called it a buyer interest index? It was a home buyer demand index, yeah. Demand index. And this is, so these are people on Redfin who demand, I'm writing down, who reach out to agent like, okay, time to go. It's like early lead conversion for you. Uh, or maybe it's down the funnel, right? You already know who the people are, but they're now like, okay, time to take action. And then you control for seasonality, which is nice. I suppose you also control for, for growth and reach as a, as a company. Do you have to do that? Like, hey, we've been, uh, we've been doing good marketing this, this quarter. That's exactly right. You know, we, we do have other controls with, you know, the slice of the market that we're paying close attention to, that we have good representation of. Um, for that. And it does track well with other measures of demand, you know, that lead in, into home sales. Uh, so it's, it's been a helpful gauge for understanding people reaching out to agents. And how, how sensitive is it? Like, will you notice a change week to week? Or is it more of like, take a few weeks to go, ah, that's starting to trend? We will notice changes week to week. So when mortgage rates, uh, you know, dropped off over a week in December and in January, you know, we instantly saw home buyers reaching out to agents to, to tour homes. And the question was always, well, how long until we can actually see that jump in sales? And the reality is about three to four months because we're sitting in the middle of March and we just saw the first major increase in existing home sales reported from NAR, whereas we were seeing this early signs of, of an uptick in activity happened all the way back in December and, you know, significantly started reporting on that in January as buyers were reacting to this 
The problem is it just takes some time for them to tour homes, make offers on homes, go under contract, close the deal, and then we get to see that in the data reported um, you know, months later. So that's what I'm excited about is being able to capture that. And you know what I can say about the, the jump in our existing home sales is that since that period of, uh, of February when a lot of homes closed, you know, rates have risen during the month of February, and that really priced out a lot more buyers from the market. So it may be a blip. We'll probably see a little bit of a decline, you know, in, in the following months of sales. But um, but overall, you know, that's kind of how I think about the, the timeline of the data. Great. So that's actually a great transition. Let's talk about the future. Let's talk about the rest of 2023. You already said you're expecting negative 5% on home price appreciation for the year. Uh, do you have sensitivity to, base, maybe based on the, the home buyer demand index, do you have uh, uh, a, a take on where consumers are, like the threshold of, of mortgage rates that we go like, oh, they're buying now? Do you have a take on that? Well, it's definitely a spectrum. You know, what we do see is that the level itself does matter. Um, certainly a lot of uh, home buyers are priced out of the market when rates are at 7% or 6.5%. Uh, but what also matters is the trajectory and where they expect rates to go. So a lot of buyers right now expect rates to go lower and they might say, well, date the rate, marry the home, and you can lock in at 65 maybe uh, pay a little bit of money up front for a two to one buy down, which gets your rate lower in the short term and then they might expect to refinance in the future. So that's partly what's uh, messing up the sensitivity to rates in terms of the overall level. It's certainly a spectrum, but the, the outlook matters a lot to them. Most people do expect inflation to moderate, the Fed eventually to back off and start cutting rates um, at some point. And as both of those things happen, or maybe even recession fears escalate, all of those forces could push mortgage rates down lower. Um, even we could see just simply the risk in the mortgage market sort of level out and we could see spreads of mortgage rates relative to 10-year treasuries decline. As any of those factors take place, you know, that could put rates closer to 65 to 6% um, within this year, which is within our outlook. We expect rates to fall below 6% before the end of the year. And all of those things would cause buyers who are interested they're touring homes they're reaching out to resident agents uh, but they're just priced out and they're sort of waiting to jump in when rates fall and we've seen a, a very intense sensitivity to rate declines of buyers jumping in when when rates fall um, week to week so we do think six percent seems extremely high compared to the three percent uh, during the pandemic but overall buyers are finding ways to mitigate this with adjustable rate mortgages or paying points on a loan uh, and really just have expectations with um, potentially moderating rates in the future. That's interesting. Okay, so you, you're you expecting rates below 6% by the end of the year, so generally drift lower. Uh, what about, uh, what's your take on the risks this year? Recession, inflation, bank crisis. What, 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 what do you think... Uh, which ones should we be paying attention to uh, specifically for their likelihood, but also for their likely impact on housing? Well, I do think overall um, fear tends to be overblown 
in terms of, you know, people freeze up when there's a lot of uncertainty and it's hard to make decisions under uncertainty. One of the things I studied uh, in grad school was behavioral economics about making decisions amidst uncertainty. And, uh, and I think that's one of the key factors here that really help people make decisions uh, going into such uncertain times. We don't know how long it's going to take before inflation can really moderate as much as the Fed would like to see. Uh, we'll learn more every month about what the Fed is doing to, to navigate inflation and to can you continue that fight while also holding off a banking crisis or other cracks in the economy from emerging. Uh, there's also fiscal policy and things that can be done with taxation and all of that to also mitigate some of these problems. Uh, but ultimately, I think there's risk of recession that's higher now because of some of the maybe overlooked areas in, in the banking system. But I think the, the Fed and, and the Treasury and other departments have the tools to essentially manage some of these things, some of these risks. So markets tend to overreact to new information. Uh, and a lot of it just has to do with, whoa, there's a lot more uncertainty now. That uncertainty can also help the housing market because it can cause mortgage rates to decline a little bit. And, uh, and if you're someone who can be confident in navigating that uncertainty, then that can bode well for you. Uh, it's important to be quick to react when rates drop uh, or, or when the market dynamics change. And so it's important to stay on top of those events. But um, but typically things sort of swing too far in one direction or the other. So rather than worry about recession or inflation per se, it's the uncertainty of those events that is really the thing that you, you see holding homebuyers back, demand back. That's exactly right. And I, you know, it, it is clear that the overall economy, that the labor market is going to cool off. Uh, you know, as we've seen in the housing market, things have been cooling off for more than a year since the Fed has been raising rates and uh, even pulled back purchasing mortgage-backed securities. As things have uh, started to slow down in the broader economy, you know, whether or not we enter into a recession or not, it's clear that overall economic activity is going to slow. The overall labor market is going to cool off a little bit um, as more workers start to enter the labor force. Maybe that results in more unemployment. Uh, but, you know, the overall trend is what, what kind of matters, the bigger picture. Whether or not we're in a recession or, or there's sort of risks in a particular sec sector uh, matters just a little bit less than sort of the long-term dynamics at play. Yeah, that's great. That's a great take. The, uh, uh, you sound actually more sanguine about uh, prospects than, than some people are, but, but the actual uncertainty being the thing that, that uh, holds people back. Would that, are, are there conditions where scenarios where, let's say the job losses hit sooner or, you know, recession hits more abruptly? Are there, are there those scenarios where then you would suddenly say, wow, our 5% is, needs to adjust? Our, our call for our expectation of 5% uh, home price decline for the year? Or is that set pretty much? No, that's, that's uh, exactly right. Every month we're meeting as a team of economists to sort of navigate the new information. And, you know, some months we've drifted higher than our baseline outlook. Some months we've drifted back down lower. Um, but on average, if you look back at how things have progressed over the last six months, uh, we're pretty much tracking right along with, with what we would have expected. So things have been volatile. Uh, they've boomed up and they've boomed down and crashed a little bit in different places. Uh, but on average, things have actually been uh, moving along a little bit more predictably than you might expect, um, overreacting to some of the you know, short-term movements. Uh, so 
that's what I would say. If we do see, you know, the banking crisis really escalate into more sectors of the economy, maybe, uh, you know, credit tightens significantly, that could certainly cause us to, you know, revise our outlook. Um, but we also don't want to overreact to just potential scenarios. Um, and so what we have seen, though, amidst the rising layoffs, particularly in tech, is that it's hit West Coast markets particularly hard. Home values have fallen much more sharply in Seattle, San Diego, San Jose uh, than they have elsewhere. Um, they've fallen more than 10% from their peak, according to the latest Case-Shiller data, and that's expected to uh, have continued to decline uh, since then. So it's certainly the case that you know what's happening in certain parts of the economy are hitting certain housing markets uh, you know, much more intensely. Um, but, but overall, we're also trying to balance that out with some places that are much more resilient, like in the Midwest and in the Northeast. Do you have a take on why the West Coast markets have got hit harder on price in the last year? Well, there's a few different reasons for it. I mean, the first, uh, markets out West tend to always be more volatile than markets in the Midwest. So anytime there's fluctuations going back more than 50 years uh, in the overall economy, they're more cyclical. They, they boom in price and they bust in price more than uh, more stable places like Chicago. Um, so we would have expected that, but in particular, we've seen uh, very quick declines in uh, prices in places like Seattle and San Francisco, and, and those are very tech-heavy sectors that have been hit not only, you know, with overall mortgage rates like everywhere else, but also, you know, the Nasdaq tech stocks have really seen a big uh, correction, so to say, and they were in a bear market. They had a really tough year last year. And that creates a big wealth effect that means less money flowing into the local housing markets in those areas, um, which has really shifted demand down further than maybe other places that are less reliant on income from, uh, from you know, tech stocks or, or other means like that. So you, you think that is maybe as a wealth effect? I mean, yeah, yes, we sort of, we see obviously the volatility higher on the upside, faster on the downside. Um, but you also see it as a wealth effect in there. Do you see it as a migration effect? Remote work definitely played a large role in Seattle boomed for 10 years uh, from 2011 uh, through 2020. In 2021, it had a net outflow of people for the first time in more than a decade. And a lot of people left the metro area and moved to places like Phoenix or Boise uh, during the pandemic. California as well, more than 180,000 people left the Bay Area just in 2021 alone. And, you know, ever since 2015, it accelerated every year with people leaving the Bay Area because it got so expensive. That certainly compounds the drop in uh, demand as people can move to more affordable places. In fact, we saw that with a lot of expensive markets, that the more expensive you were, the more sensitive you were to changes in things like mortgage rates, because it heavily encourages buyers to relocate and search for more affordable places when rates go up and you're in an expensive area. So that's definitely what we saw happen in our migration data. Uh, the share of people moving that are looking to relocate outside their metro area um, has hit a, a recent high, about 25%, um, which is up from just 20% before the pandemic. So more people on redfin.com are, are looking to move away from their local metro area. And that's significantly, uh, you know, intensified in these more expensive markets like in California and in out west. Interesting. 
uh, more migration on Redfin. That's that's uh, maybe that's a a long term positive thing. Certainly, and that's actually a good transition. We're we're already uh, coming up on an hour. I can't believe it. One thing I like to to ask my guests is about your view of the longer term future. So uh, mid mid decade, later in the decade, tell me about your view. Uh, especially since you've been you're you're interested in migration and and affordability, uh, are there trends that you're optimistic about, or that we should be that we should know about, or things like that that we should think? How how do you look at the the later in the decade? So some of the recent trends that I've been excited about uh, really has to do with the nuances of zoning reform. There's been a number of places that have uh, changed their zoning to allow for more housing construction. Cities are wonderful places that connect people to great job opportunities or other opportunities in life. Uh, But the benefits of that have really been held back because there isn't enough housing in those prime locations. Um, And increasingly, they're only available to uh, high income folks that can afford to to pay high rents um, to have that access. So a number of cities have been trying to address this challenge by changing their zoning laws to allow for more housing construction. We saw this most uh, notably in Minneapolis of their city completely overhauling zoning and in favor of more multifamily construction. Now, there there were a lot of uh, reasons that that wasn't completely done yet, uh, meaning that, sure, they can allow duplexes, but they had other restrictions like setback requirements or, or height restrictions that held back some uh, multifamily construction from happening. But the effect we've seen so far is that there has been a boom in multifamily construction in Minneapolis, and that's resulted in a drop of rents finally for that area. We've seen this start to take place in other cities and throughout California and Oregon. Uh, and so there's been momentum in terms of changing the, the code to allow for more housing construction. This is really encouraging to me because it takes many years before you can actually see any effects of this and, and really builders can file permits, build the buildings, um, and, and create opportunities for people to uh, move into these areas and cities to expand transit to those areas. So it's sort of a long-term trend, but, uh, but that shift you know, is underway already, and we're seeing some encouraging progress there. That's great to know. So you can, we can actually uh, measure impact of zoning changes that, that a city is like, we, we're changing zoning because we need more affordability. And guess what? We're actually measuring more affordability in some of those places. That is encouraging. That is indeed encouraging um, to, to watch. Okay, Taylor, uh, it's been a terrific conversation. I really appreciate your time and your views on the world and, and all of Redfin's uh, deeply insightful data and, and, and skill and, and presenting it, both you and and uh, Daryl Fairweather, like uh, I, I appreciate the work that you guys put out uh, on the Redfin team very much. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, so where should people find you? Well, thank you so much for having me on. And yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Taylor A. Marr. And, uh, you know, you can also go to the Redfin blog to see all of the great data and research we're putting out there at redfin.com slash news. Um, I also write a weekly newsletter on Substack that you can find on my Twitter as well, uh, where I really am just reacting and digesting the latest week's news and housing data. Okay, the Substack. I uh, will put links to it and see if we can get you some, some, some subscribers to your Substack. That's really terrific. Thank you so much, everybody. This is the Top of Mind podcast from Altos Research. If you uh, 
need to, you can, you can find Taylor's work on the Redfin blog. So that's redfin.com slash news uh, for, on his Twitter, Taylor Amar, uh, and his Substack. You can always go to altosresearch.com and do your local data. And, you know, we're in this world where everybody is confused about what's happening in the market and things are changing very quickly. Uh, so I really appreciate your, your, your insight on what is happening, what's not happening. And uh, thanks so much. And we're we'll lo- looking forward to more. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate leaving a nice review on your favorite podcast app that helps other people find us as well. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes.